in 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John says that uh, though we are in this world, we are not of this world. And it's a great little reminder of, I think, what we, we, um, we get, it right? That we live on this planet, we're part of this planet, we're part of the society, we're engaged in some way in its culture. We, we live by its structures, but we're not defined by its culture. We're not defined by this world. We belong somewhere else. And of course, any time that I speak about the world, I have to quote Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins, where he says, right, I have to say it every time, right? The world is a vampire, out to drain. Um, and it ta he talks there about how, how um, uh, the, the, the desires that are, that are left un, un, unmet. Um, yeah, the hat's working wonderfully, Colin. <laughs> Uh, betrayed desires is what he talks about and then of course the, the the chorus line is despite all my rage i'm still just a rat in a cage and i i think it's a great um kind of cultural word on the world and the society that we live in that the world is about sucking us dry and leaving us used and abused and um and that at the end we do often feel like we're rats running around in a cage so while we live, we may live for now in a rat cage, we are not rats. And the cage is not our home. That's the big deal. And we're going to read from 2 Corinthians this morning. And we're going to find that Paul has been accused of being a rat. <laughs> oh, is Ella a rat as well? Is she? Oh, okay. Paul has been accused of being part of this world and allowing this world to determine his ministry. And what, what we're going to find here this morning in just a few verses is Paul is going to say two things. He's going to say, number one, that we don't live by the structures or the standards of this world. We live by a different standard. And then he's going to say, we don't fight like this world fights. We fight with different weapons. So those are really just the two things that I want us to pick up on this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I'm just going to read the first six verses. By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold when away. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be bold, as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we will be ready to punish every act of disobedience once your obedience is complete. So two things this morning, the standards of the world and the weapons of the world. If you've been following these sermons on 2 Corinthians over the last two months now, you would have been aware that Paul has a very stormy relationship with this church. Uh, just a, a quick read through 1 Corinthians will highlight for you some of the issues and some of the conflicts that Paul has had with this church. But as we've been reading 2 Corinthians, it seems that there's been some improvement in some areas in their relationship with one another. 
uh, there's been some repentance from some of the folks. Some, some people in the church seem to have seen the error of their ways. And there's been some change. But there's still a faction in this church led by a group of guys, the, su- the so-called super apostles, the uber apostles. Um, and they've been very, very critical of Paul. And they continue to be critical of Paul and critical of Paul's ministry. And what happens in chapter 10, 11, and 12 is that Paul is defending himself against these critics. He's defending himself and his ministry from their unfair criticism. Now, he's defending himself not because he's got a big ego and he's got to somehow boost himself. He's defending himself because the attack is not just on him, but on on the gospel that he's been proclaiming. And the deal is that, that, that if Paul is discredited, well, then the implication is that the gospel that Paul has been preaching is going to be discredited too and proved to be inadequate. And so Paul is defending not just his own ego, but he's defending himself and fighting for the soul of this church and the heart of the gospel. And so he's defending himself against his critics. And so we'll see next week in particular some more of the the criticisms that are laid against Paul by this powerful faction and and just some of Paul's responses to him. Next week we'll see them saying that Paul is just a a bandy-legged hunchback. Why would you listen to him? That he can barely string a coherent sentence together. What's there to listen to? In fact, Paul is just an absolutely rabid extremist. He's He's a fanatic. And that's what we'll pick up on next week. But, but this morning, what we just read, the accusation laid against him this morning is that, and we read it in that first verse, right, that uh, Paul is, is timid when he's face to face, but all bold and, and brash when he's from a distance. It's all very easy to be, to be all, you know, bolshy when you're far away, but when you get Paul up close, ah. And so they're saying, you know, Paul talks a big game from a distance, but as soon as we challenge him, you'll see he's a, he's a pushover. He, he acts like a lion, but when we get him here, you'll see he's just a little pussycat. And we'll show you that the, these super apostles are saying, but we'll show you. And so they're effectively saying within that, that Paul is, Paul is a hypocrite. That there's inconsistency in his, in, in his ministry. That on the one hand, he's all bold and brash, but face to face, he's just all sugar and sweets. And then what they, what, where they take that to is they say Paul actually is just being driven by worldly standards. Paul is, it, it, it lacks true spirituality. He's living by the standards of this world. Now, here's what I think they meant by that. I think what these guys were saying is that we as the super apostles who have set ourselves up in charge in this church, we have true spirituality. We're really super spiritual. In fact, we've found ourselves on a heightened level of spirituality far and above anything that Paul has been proclaiming. Paul's just a little bit too rational. We have found true spirituality. And what they've, what they've gone into is some kind of weird super spiritual mysticism. And this is now my guess. This isn't stuff straight out the Bible. This is my guess. But I think that they've begun to adopt some of the aspects of the mystical religions of the day and brought that into the church. So so let me point out some of the the religions of the day. um, uh, People in Corinth would worship the god Bacchus. Uh, Do you know who Bacchus is? He's the god of wine. (laughs) Okay, And they, they would worship the god of wine. 
So today we have bottle stores and you can't go and worship him anymore because they're closed. But in Corinth, they would literally have a temple dedicated to the God of wine. And you'd go to the temple and you'd perform your acts of worship before the God of wine. And the way that you would worship him is that you would drink wine. And the more you drink, the more you worship. And in fact, the idea was that if you could get yourself to drink just the right amount, you just get that right balance, and some of you from your younger days remember what this looks like, where you're not quite passed out, but are no longer in control. You know, do you remember that moment, some of you? Maybe you shouldn't acknowledge that you do. <laughs> All right, and so the, 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 the worship of Bacchus was, if you could get yourself to that point, then you were under the control of the God. And you would then enjoy this somewhat mystical experience. Not quite passed out, but certainly not in control of yourself. And in fact, what was even better, and again, some of you will remember these days, if you then began to speak, and what came out of your mouth was gibberish. Remember those days? <laughs> and you could speak gibberish. Well, that was, that was a sign of the God speaking through you. And everyone around you would be going, oh, the God is speaking. Well, I mean, we know the wine is speaking, right? But you know, the God is speaking. This is wonderful. And so, so the whole thing about the worship of Bacchus was out of control, speaking gibberish, getting drunk. Now, when you look at 1 Corinthians and some of the things that Paul has to pull the church up on, he, he, he has to have a word to the church because they're getting drunk at communion. They're bringing the wine in and having a little bit too much. Paul has to have some very firm words to this church because they're out of control. And he says, our God is not a God who delights in chaos. Our God is a God of order and self-control, very opposite to what's going on in, in the temples at Bacchus. And in fact, Paul then has to have a word and, and um, what would be the word? Limit them, I guess. On their speaking in tongues. Paul doesn't, doesn't stop them from speaking in tongues, but he does say to them, listen, I'd far rather you speak five intelligible words that people can understand so that everyone can be encouraged rather than you babble incoherently for an hour. Can you see that there's maybe a little bit of a crossover there? And so it's not for sure that the church was doing the Bacchus thing, but I just think that there's an interesting similarity. And I wonder if these super apostles were doing just that, looking at what was going on in those temples over there and going, that's spiritual, that's mystical. How can we take that and make it semi-Christian and bringing that stuff into the church? And so they were saying, we're spiritual. Paul doesn't understand us. We've got this mystical experience that Paul doesn't get. One of the other things, of course, was the worship of the goddess Diana. And there was a temple to the goddess, of Di goddess Diana. Diana was the goddess of love. And her temple wasn't filled with wine, but it was filled with prostitutes. And it was considered to be your act of worship, and it was considered to be a civic duty to go and visit a prostitute regularly. It's what you did. This is our worship. This is how we worship the goddess. And then you look at, what, at the moral issues that are going on in the church in Corinth. You think of the guy who's, who's um, engaged in, in a relationship with his stepmother. And Paul has to condemn that and say, hey, whoa, there's a measure of, of morality that we hold to in the church and yet the church is applauding these actions and again i have to wonder if these super apostles are, are kind of looking at the culture around them and welcoming that into the church 
And then these super apostles are saying, well, Paul just doesn't get us. He's just a bigoted, narrow-minded fundamentalist, and he doesn't realize that our spirituality transcends the flesh, transcends these moral things that are going on around us. And if only Paul would embrace our true spirituality, he wouldn't get so wound up about all these moral issues. And so I think that's, that's what they're saying in terms of Paul is worldly, we're spiritual. They felt that they'd reached a higher spiritual mystical plane and were condemning Paul for saying, guys, there's a right and a wrong in how you're living, how you're behaving. And so Paul has had to rebuke the church. In fact, earlier on in this letter, uh, again, just the whole spiritual versus worldly thing. Earlier in this letter, Paul says, I've made plans to come to Corinth. And then those plans fell apart and I couldn't come anymore and I've had to change plans. And the accusation was, well, yeah, well, there you go. There's Paul. If he was spiritual, he would have engaged with the Holy Spirit and the Spirit would have led him so that he wouldn't have made any bad decisions. And so Paul is obviously being driven by just worldly standards. It's all about his own, whatever will benefit him. And so they're saying, Paul is driven by the standards of the world. He's not really spiritual at all. And how's Paul going to respond to this? Like he could get all heated and angry. He could, uh, you know, um, how dare they say this? But instead what he does is, right at the beginning of this letter, or this chapter, he says, I appeal to you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. So he says, listen, I'm on my way to you guys. I'm coming. I'll be there in a month's time. And I want to come and be nice. But I might have to bring a stick with a nail in it. Alright? And if you need me to bring out the stick, I'll do it. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he said this. So this is the previous letter. He said, uh, which would you prefer? The whip or gentleness and love? He says, I know which one I would prefer. And so now he says the same thing again here. He says, those two options are still on the table. I can come with a big stick. Or I can come for a group hug. Which would you prefer? It's like dad who goes into the bedroom and says to the child, you have one hour to clean this room. One hour. And in an hour, I'm coming back. And when I come back, I'm going to have the wooden spoon in this pocket. Ella. And a chocolate in this pocket. Page. <laughs> it's a page. Page is the issue. And when I come back in an hour, the state that I find the room in will determine which pocket I go to. <laughs> and that's really what Paul is saying here, right? He says, I have a big stick and I have a group hug. And when I arrive at Corinth, what I find in the church will determine which pocket I go to. So you think I'm all nice and sweet from a, you know, up close and only rough from a distance. I can get bold when I'm close by too. But, but that being said, he says, I want to come with the gentleness and the meekness of Christ. I think what's interesting is that, of course, the super apostles, that they're the ones who are actually living by the standards of this world. We'll, we'll get to them in a moment. What are worldly standards? Yeah, I mean... 
Paul doesn't tell us in this passage, but I think we can, we, we can put some words to it ourselves probably. What are the things that the world around us views and values as important and significant? How, how does the world around us evaluate life and success? Perhaps we, we hear things like, blessed are the powerful, for they will inherit the earth. Or, or blessed are the rich, because they will eat, drink, and be merry. And blessed are the beautiful, for they will be loved. Blessed are the forceful, for they take what they need and what they want. Right? Blessed are the manipulative, because they'll get served. Blessed are the amoral, because they seem to have a whole lot of fun. Add whatever else you think in terms of the values and standards of the world, what this world likes, what this world approves of, the things that this world thinks is great. And the thing is, it's those very things that the super apostles were uh, 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 um, pursuing. These guys in Corinth, that's exactly what they were after. They were all about power and control and wealth and prestige. The very things that this world approves of is the very things that these guys in Corinth were seeking for themselves. But what are the standards of the kingdom of God? The very opposite in many ways, right? Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not for another glass of wine, but for righteousness. For they'll be filled. And so what Paul says here is that this is the basis of my appeal. The meekness and gentleness of Christ. That's what I'm appealing to because that is the standards that I'm living by. It's so easy for us to become absorbed by the standards of our society. To live by the standards and dictates of our culture. To mimic society and mimic culture and the way we think and act and behave. And to bring all of that into the church. And you just think how many churches seem to forget about the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I'm glad to say that I think many churches do get the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I think there are many churches with many leaders who do lead out of this meekness and gentleness. But I think we could probably name one or two churches where meekness and gentleness seems to appear way down on the list of things. And that instead it actually is about power and control and influence and wealth and prestige. And then we've got to ask ourselves the question too, right? To, to what extent have we adopted the standards of this world? To what extent are we shaped by social media and the opinions of those around us? Are our opinions on politics and economics shaped by the gospel? Or shaped by the world and it saddens me to see so many Christians who just regurgitate the latest meme on social media without thinking about how the gospel applies to this and what ends up happening is we actually we, we diminish the gospel and then we begin to judge ourselves by the world standards too and we go oh I'm not pretty enough or I'm not wealthy enough, or I'm not powerful enough. Instead of judging ourselves by the gospel and seeing that Christ values us. To what extent do we allow this world to determine how we think and behave? 
going to say this. I, I, I was tempted as to whether I wade into this or not. And I, you know, there's, there's some things in life where you just think, man, should I step, step on this landmine? Um, so the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I said something about this about a month ago. But how do we respond to that in a gospel way? Is there a gospel way to respond? It, it seems that at the moment, if you say Black Lives Matter, you're a, you're a Marxist. How terrible of you. But if you say all lives matter, you're a racist. How can you say that? So, so what, what does the gospel say in this debate? And I find it quite sad to see a number of Christians that, that do. We just repost random memes without thinking, well, what does the gospel actually say? And so what, what I've seen most recently, uh, particularly amongst Christian folk, is, a, is a, a meme that has a picture of the cross. And under, the, under it saying, Jesus says all lives matter. And yes, it's true, but, I mean, Jesus did die for the whole world. So we agree, with, we, we know that. But do you remember in John chapter 4, when Jesus arrives at a little town called Sychar, and he sits down at a well, and he's arrived in a town that is, that's been cut off from the rest of Israel. He, he's arrived in a part of the country that is looked down upon. In fact, it, it's, a, it's almost a separate country. He's arrived in Samaria. And Samaria has not had the benefits of Israel for the last 300 years. In fact, the people in Samaria are not employed for jobs that regular Jews would be employed for. And the, the opportunities for advancement in Samaria have been just about nil. And at that place, and at that time, Jesus says, Samaritan lives matter. And for just a moment, for those people... Samaritan lives matter. And then later on, he encounters a Phoenician woman who's also on the outskirts and outside. She's a, she's a widow. Her child is sick. And she says, please help me. And Jesus says, sorry, I'm here for the Jews only because Jewish lives matter. And the woman says, but don't even, don't even dogs get something? And Jesus says, you're right. And Jesus says, Phoenician lives matter. And the woman is bleeding. And Jesus says to her, your life matters. And so I just begin to wonder, do we allow memes and society to shape how we think on societal issues? Or do we really think a little bit deeper about what the gospel actually says about the issues that face us as a culture? So that's kind of my first point this morning. That we don't live by the standards of the world. We live by different standards. We don't just parrot the opinions of the world and wrap those opinions up in some kind of pseudo-spiritual Christianese. But that we live by a completely different set of standards altogether. But not only do we li not live by the standards of the world, we also don't fight with the weapons of this world. We fight with very different weapons. Now... 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse, oh, sorry, chapter 10 verse, what did we read, verse 3, 4, and 5, that section where it says, um, for the weapons of our warfare are, are not of this world, but are mighty to pull down strongholds. Whenever, whenever anyone talks about spiritual warfare, that verse seems to appear. Now, let me say, I, I do think that, that we are involved in a spiritual battle. There is a spiritual battle that is being fought. We are in a war, but I need to say this also, that the war has been won, right? The devil has been defeated. 
and Jesus, Paul, Paul says very clearly that, that he was disarmed at the cross. So the battle's already won. But I think the church went down a very strange avenue in this regard a few years ago. As a child of the 80s, I have a lot of things to apologize for. I apologize for wham. <laughs> Wake me up before you go. I mean, that's terrible, right? I apologize for Boy George and Karma Comedian. I apologize for, for, for those you know, shoulder pads that we all wore back there. Just, so there's a lot to apologize for from the 1980s. But here's, here's something that, that had a, I don't know, it seemed to have had a major impact in the church. Some of you will remember this book, This Present Darkness. And if you remember it, Frank Peretti. It was a, a novel, and it was about a small town, and how the small town is being harassed by demons, and there's a whole bunch of angels hanging around, but the angels can't do anything because they're weak. It seems like they're, they're on um, you know, energizer batteries, and the batteries need to be recharged. And the way that the batteries get recharged is if the pastor prays. And so the more the pastor prays, the more pumped up the angels get. And there ends up being this major battle between angels and demons with flashing swords. And it's all very exciting. And in the end, the angels win. And it's a wonderful story of victory. Woohoo! The, the, the thing is that what the book essentially portrayed is that there's poor God. Well, the book hardly ever mentions God. But anyway, there's poor God stuck in heaven, unable to really do anything. His hands are tied. Shame. Poor him. He'd love to help. But he just can't. And so it's really it's up to you and me. And if we pray really hard, the demons will, will run away and we'll be free and life will be wonderful. And that was the book. And, I, you know, it was a, it was a fun story. But what, what went wrong is that a lot of people in the church, and I confess to being one of them for a while, kind of started to think that maybe this book was real. And there were a whole bunch of prayer meetings that started happening all over the place where people were, were praying that the angels would get power to fight the demons. It was kind of weird. And a lot of what came out of that book came straight from this little passage, you know, taking out strongholds and knocking down arguments. And, and although that passage um, is often used to speak about spiritual warfare, you'll notice that Paul is not actually speaking about angels or demons here at all, is he? I mean, who's, who's Paul fighting against in this passage? He's fighting against the super apostles at, at Corinth. That's who he's fighting against. There are no swords visible. So Paul is in conflict with people in the church, but he doesn't say much about angels and demons. What he does say is we're, 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 we're going to have a fight. We're, we're in conflict. We're going to fight, but we're not going to fight like this world fights. We're not going to use the weapons that our world would use. So what would those weapons be? Well, I guess Paul is saying something like this. We're not going to march on Corinth with a bunch of Macedonians behind us and force this faction in the church to convert at the point of a sword. That's how the world does it, right? That's, that's how radical Islam works. That's how the Crusaders did it a thousand years ago. That's often how the, the liberal left uh, make demands. Change your opinion on morality or we'll we will withdraw your funding. The world works on threats. Paul says... We're not going to work like that. We're not going to operate on threats. I suppose Paul could get involved in a Twitter war, right? That's how we do it today. We get involved in a Twitter war. But Paul chooses not to do that. Perhaps Paul needs a good 
PR company to just boost his image a little bit. Perhaps Paul needs to get a good advertising agency behind him just to change, soften his tone a little perhaps. Wouldn't that be better? Perhaps he could go to court and get a lawyer. Perhaps he should stoop to their level and hurl abuse at them as well and get very personal because that's how the world wages war. That's how the world deals with issues. You've seen how it happens. You've seen how the powerful use Twitter to bully their opponents. But Paul says, we use different weapons altogether. Before we talk about the weapons that he uses, again, what's he, quite, what's he going up against? And it's not quite the Corinthians. It's not really that he's going out personally against these, these pseudo-apostles. What he's actually going to fight against, he says, is the, uh, the, the strongholds, the arguments, and the pretensions that set themselves up against God and his kingdom. So Paul's not going to launch a, a personal attack on these people. He's not going to get personal He's going to take on the, the philosophies that they've set in place that make the church function. So what are arguments and pretensions and strongholds that set themselves up against God? What does he mean by that? And I, I guess to some extent that goes back to well, what we're we talking about when we talk about the world. And really any system that sets itself up as a, as a way to find happiness and joy and fulfillment apart from God... That's what Paul's willing to take on. So any ism you can think of, that's what Paul's willing to take on, particularly if it's been dragged into the church. Communism, socialism, Marxism. Paul says we'll, we'll take on those things, particularly if they end up in the church. And what, what often happens is that Christians put all those words together, but they, they, they forget to the add the other one. They forget to add capitalism. Because I think a lot of Christians in the West seem to think that capitalism is the Bible's answer to life, the universe, and everything. The gospel isn't about setting, settling down to a particular political or economic agenda. Now, to be fair, I'm far happier living in a free market economy than I would living under harsh communism. I get that. But the point of, it, of this is that neither of them are the gospel. And the fact is that the gospel allows Christians to flourish under any political and economic system. It calls us to fight and resist those aspects of the ism that are in conflict with the gospel and calls us to stand up and approve of those things that would stand alongside the gospel. And so what that means is that because of the gospel, whether you're a Christian in China or a Christian in America, you can flourish as God's people. And, and to add to all that, we can add a whole bunch of other isms to this, right? We can add our materialism and our consumerism and our psychologizing selfism and a whole host of other things. The problem is that we, are, we, we simply absorb all of these things into our life because it's, it's just, it's kind of like the air we breathe. It's the culture we live in. And so often we bring them into our lives without, without even thinking about it. And so we become consumers just because we're in a consumer society without even thinking what that may mean for us and the gospel. We just so often assume that it's normal and therefore this is the way that it should be. And then what happens is the church ends up just being a reflection of the world around us, a reflection of the culture, just like Corinth was in its day. 
And so the church becomes a place of self-service, where we're self-centered, where it's all about me and my power and my wealth and my comfort and my ease. And so I'll come and I'll consume and I'll go where it's convenient. You know, if the, if the church along the road's got a better air conditioning system than we have right now, maybe I'll go there next week because, because we're going to go where it's convenient. Because it's convenience that counts. It's going to be where, where my needs are met. That church has got a better ad campaign. That church's pastor is better looking than... No, that wouldn't happen. Um, but, and so often the church ends up using the weapons of this world in order to advance the cause of the gospel. And that leads to confusion because what we end up advancing is not the gospel, but we advance instead the kingdom of this world in the church. And so we add a pseudo-spiritual twist to it and we'll entertain and we'll promote consumer comfort. Come to Jesus, your life will be wonderful. So Paul says, I'm on my way to Corinth and I'm going to confront this pseudo-spiritual worldliness that's ended up in the church i'm going to confront these arguments and pretensions that have been brought into the church and, and well so the question is well how is paul going to do that is he going to is he going to have public debate is he going to craft clever arguments that will counter the things that have gone on in the church now what paul says is that we have divine power to break down these arguments so what is that divine power and if you go back to to this present darkness, then you know that divine power is, is prayer and Bible reading and, and the, the power of the Spirit. And if you can just, you've you got to say the right words and plead the blood and do whatever else it is. What's the power that Paul is talking about? Often in the letters that Paul writes, he speaks about power. Consider this, Romans chapter 1 verse 16, where Paul says, For the gospel is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. So what is this divine power that destroys strongholds and arguments and isms? It's the gospel. Paul's not going to write up a fancy book in apologetics, as, as helpful as that is. He's not going to create a, an alternate political economic society, as, as great as that would sound. He's going to present the gospel to his critics and to the church. And he's effectively saying, as you grasp the gospel, and as the gospel gets into your heart, you'll find that the gospel undermines and knocks down all these pretensions and isms and worldliness within the church. So here's where we end up, right? We, we, in, in Marxism, you have a powerful state that becomes the savior, and capitalists are demonized. But if you go the other way, you'll find that it's free market and competition that will solve all our problems. And it's my individual performance that leads to happiness and joy. And those dreadful Marxists, they're the ones that are the enemy. And that's kind of the conflict that our nation is in at the moment, in case you haven't got that. Um, that's where our, conf our conflict lies at the moment. Should the state run everything and, and kind of nanny you and look after you? Or should it be up to individuals to figure out what to do themselves? The problem is that both of those things offer a means of salvation that are separate from God. And the good news is that the gospel undermines both of them. The gospel allows you to live in a Marxist society and bear up under injustice and fight for freedom. 
And the gospel allows you to live under a capitalist society and bear up under the rampant greed and selfishness and fight for justice. So the gospel undermines both. And so the gospel says wherever you live and under whatever kind of rule you live, live for the gospel. Fight for the gospel. And see that the gospel undermines the very worst things in your culture and exposes that for evil but glorifies and, and, and celebrates, rejoices in the very good things, the gospel-centered things in the culture. Let me try and get back to the, the, the scripture here. I think we can see that Paul is not talking about gathering an army of angels and to go and fight the demons. He's also not trying to gather an army of protesters with banners to go and march on the temples in Corinth. What he says is that I recognize that, a, that there are systems of thinking that have infiltrated the church. And I'm not going to fight them like the world fights. I'm not going to do a PR thing. I'm going to announce and declare the gospel. I'm going to announce and declare the meekness and gentleness of Christ and his work on the cross. I'm going to announce again my lack and his gift. And when that message is understood, it changes hearts. And we go from being proud to being humble. We go from being self-righteous to seeing his righteousness. We go from being self-indulgent to being self-controlled. And so Paul is going to war. And you and I are in war. We're in battle. And the source of the battle is certainly demonic. But the, the war is for our minds and our souls. And the battlefield we are fighting on is consumerism and materialism and ent entitlement and entertainment and whatever else of our society that seeks to capture us. And the victory is not going to be won with strange rituals and pseudo-spiritual experiences. I know time's getting on, but I've got to tell you the story because it's hilarious. I think it's hilarious. There was a clip on YouTube about two weeks ago. Um, and it was a clip from a, a church that is related to the Bethel Church in California, which is a church at the moment. Um, on the stage, on the stage was a lady, and she was wearing a funny robe. You'll, I'll tell you about the robe in a moment. So she's on the stage wearing this robe, and there's, there's four elders on the stage with her, and they're all holding a wooden staff in their hand. Now, this lady, she's been talking about racism and how racism is bad. That's good. And she's been saying, how is the church? We need to combat racism. That's good. And then she says, this is where it gets, I think it gets hilarious. She says, we're going to make an apostolic decree. I have no idea what an apostolic decree is, but we're going to do it apparently. And so she in her robe with the four elders holding the staff, she says, here's what we're going to do. The elders are going to bang the staff on the stage. And I'm going to count to three. And the elders and I together on the stage are going to say this. You shall not pass. Bang. Now, if any of you have paid any attention to movies or books in the last little while, <laughs> you may recognize that kind of phrasing and action from the Lord of the Rings. And in fact, the robe that she was wearing looked like it came straight off the set of the movie. So there's a point in the Lord of the Rings where there's a big demon running across a bridge and Gandalf with his staff goes, you shall not pass. Bang. And that's what they're doing in this church. And I'm just like, what? And so they do this. And she says, that was great. We need to do it again. One, two, three. You shall not pass. 
bang. And then the whole church needs to stand up because you need to join us in this apostolic decree. And the whole church together, we, you shall not. I'm not quite sure that that's how we combat the evil of racism in our world. I wonder if perhaps applying the gospel to our lives and recognizing that we love others above ourselves is perhaps a better way than banging a stick on a stage and invoking the spirit of Gandalf in church on Sunday morning. <laughs> we fight against the self and our self-serving inclinations by preaching the gospel to ourselves, by reminding ourselves that Jesus gave all in serving not himself but others. We oppose the strongholds of our own hearts, the strongholds of comfort and convenience and consumerism and conformity by reminding ourselves of the gospel, that Jesus gave up comfort for our sakes, that Jesus obeyed the Father's will even though it was inconvenient, and that instead of consuming, he gave. The weapons of this world are simply innate greed, longings, and desires, and it's the gospel that breaks that over and over and overcomes those things and brings us in obedience to the cross and our Savior. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you this morning for the power of the cross and for the glory of the gospel and for our wonderful Savior. And Lord, we, we recognize we live in a world, we live in a culture uh, that often is so appealing and often we we struggle to recognize where our culture has crossed the line we just so often see this as normal lord help us to filter our worldview through the gospel to not be uh, caught up in the standards of this world and judge ourselves and those around us based on the world standards and patterns May we wage war, not just with clever arguments and, I don't know, sound bites, but may we apply the gospel to ourselves and preach the gospel to others and recognize that in this way, we shall overcome. For you have overcome for us. So we give you thanks. Amen. Amen. So remember... Turn your eyes, look up, and 6 o'clock tonight if you want to find the Baptist Union of South Africa on Facebook and follow the prayer meeting there online. Otherwise, we'll see you guys next week. And if the children actually finished their worksheet, you better come here. Brother, did you wear shoes? Yes, they're over there. Oh, okay. <laughs> that is fantastic, Sam. Thank you so much. Wow. Do you want to take it home or can I take it home to Auntie Bernice? What do you think? Shall I take it home? Okay. Because yeah, that is wonderful. There you go. That is very nice, Holly. Love. Check it there, man.
Come on, man, that's so easy. <gasps> Thank you, Katie. Thank you. That's just sweet. <laughs>